Waves in the Finiverse. It, it's interesting the cycles that those financial firms observe. There seems to be FOMO in these massive upticks. We're all getting a bit of a wake-up call. Like, okay, guys, like before we were all, you know, folks were out there searching for their unicorn valuation and all these other things and puffing their chests. Trust no one else except the blockchain. And if you're going to trust the blockchain, you need to understand how to be intimate with it and run it and understand its nuance. Today in the Finiverse, we're going on a hunt for a crystal ball. Well, actually, a crystal ball made up of millions of lines of dots, dashes, and numbers. You guessed it, data. Could this be the key to success? Can data help you make predictions and forecasts more accurately? Joining us today is Tim Rice, CEO of CoinMetrics, the company that gives institutional investors the heads up through crypto financial intelligence. So I kicked off by asking him, what is the potential for blockchain? I find crypto like super enabling um, across and have a real long-term vision of the opportunity. I just believe um, every revolution needs a number of different agents to see it along. And the longer team term, I do see some massive opportunities with where we can go with decentralized blockchain technologies and smart contracts and what they can do to enable the world. Um, you know, I do think the challenge of the technology right now is the lack of good user interfaces. And when we come to the space and we think we're going to bank the unbanked, it's like, this is the most complicated way to bank anyone. <laughs> so it's funny, that's what we're trying to solve for the world. And so, you know, we're running in all these different directions across all these various assets and blockchains. And, you know, what we try to do really well at CoinMetrics is focus on that customer journey. And so we're really well versed in the traditional financial journey into new asset classes and what they're looking for. But I think the broader view of this is we've really got a lot of work to do to, if our objective is to bank the unbanked and do other work in this Um there's a lot of work that needs to get done. And some of these unfortunate events that we can talk about slow that progress. Yeah, well, Tim, you're you're bringing up a good point because the user experience in crypto isn't the best, um, especially if you are just getting started. Um, yet I didn't see that, you know, is CoinMetrics part of that user experience? So we're not really part of the user experience at this point. So what we're doing is kind of, working at the data layer to help expose the facts that exist on these ledgers and help you observe the vibrancy and how these um, systems are evolving. You can trade this asset class and create value for yourself um, that ultimately is hopefully feeding into the ecosystems in order to enrich the developers that are working on that content. Um, but again, long journey, even for what we would think are sophisticated users of content, figuring out how to enable the journey for themselves. So that's where we're operating. We're we're kind of the Rosetta Stone of this content and trying to read it, understand it, contextualize it and serve it up so that someone where we've looked at legacy frameworks and understanding can actually translate that into what's going on from what they've been used to 
Um, and so it's kind of like meet them where they are rather than have them do the hard work. Uh, you know, we've got a hugely enthusiastic, super talented group of young people who live, breathe and have died, not died, live and breathe this every single day. Um, and they, you know, start with pure creativity and ingenuity. And fortunately, you know, Coinmetrics created value for them and these assets create value for them to keep doing that. And so it's just been super interesting. Well, and Tim, uh, you had mentioned your colleagues studied the economic behavior of public blockchains, and you actually run nodes in your office for most of the public blockchains. Can you explain what that picture uh, provides you, what having those nodes in situ help you with? Yeah, so running our own node infrastructure, we're kind of fickle about, you know, trust no one else except the blockchain. And if you're going to trust the blockchain, you need to understand how to be intimate with it and run it and understand its nuance when there's software upgrades, upgrade the software. So you're running the latest versions of the software. And then, you know, we're, we're getting very sophisticated and monitoring activities in real time. Um, so we think it's super important that you, you know, I kind of have this argument that it's like, you can get to a point where you have a calculator, but before that you needed to learn how to do addition, subtraction and long division. Right. And so I think we have that kind of core ethos here that you need to run it, read its API, watch it, make sure it's doing what, and the data is still saying what it says over the long term. Um, so we think that it's very important. And the other thing that we think is important is, you know, in, a lot of well so for 14 years plus now bitcoin's been chugging along producing a block every 10 minutes or so like it said it was going to um if you run nodes in a cloud service provider and the cloud goes down bitcoin's still doing what it was supposed to be doing and you're kind of losing touch with it and we've seen that instance whether it's a aws or a cloudflare i mean it's part of their business it's not a you know ding on them but bitcoin just keeps chugging along so We've set up infrastructure to make sure we're we're there when Bitcoin's there, when Ethereum's there, and it's always running, and we're on top of what's going on. And then the other thing that that kind of embraces is, you know, the decentralized nature of blockchains. You're looking for participants to spread out and watch, or validate, or mine on these blockchains. And and then you know we kind of embrace that core ethos about being decentralized. And so we operate in these physical data infrastructures in order to be part of it, participate, be involved. We think it's important for self-sovereignty of the node infrastructure where, you know, their AWS East here in the U.S. controls or has a lot of Ethereum being worked on on that. Um, that kind of is counterintuitive to the decentralized thinking of the blockchains, right? Because you actually do have a consolidation, even though there are individual entities operating, you've got a big chunk there. And so we've seen this to be hugely important when China shut down Ali Cloud, we saw, you know, and then did other things we saw, we, we you know, they were losing a lot of transparency and, and capabilities to understand distribution. So we think this is the right way. It's kind of, I guess it's OG that we do it. Uh, a lot of people just run it in clouds and it performs to do what it does. But we like to get in tight with things and get a little bit dirty in it. And I also understand you have the data coming out of all of the exchanges um, and, you know, you're able to see trading volume real time. Um, uh, I just uh, wanted to ask you a question uh, in the aftermath or in the lead up to FTX. What 
did you know were you seeing uh unusual activity and and has there been a flight to quality amongst other exchanges where do the you know where do you see the volume that ftx used to handle winding up yeah so you know it's interesting because it's a it, when we set out we said okay you need on-chain data you need the right market data aggregated and then you need to be able to kind of create an index solution off of it <clears throat> and so studying the normal volumes of FTX, even into the weekend where CZ and SPF started their Twitter battle. Um, there was nothing abnormal about the volumes historically from either one of them, where you had to dig in is what was actually happening on the on-chain side of things. And um, that's where, you know, we didn't see anything abnormal on the exchange connections or the volumes were similar until the event happened. Um, but then the on-chain side was where it got really interesting. The the key thing on the flight to quality, what I think we've seen, and I'm personally guilty or responsible, is you know I've moved many of my asset personal assets off to cold storage in my own somewhere in the world. So that flight to safety has happened from those exchanges. So people are moving their assets either to a more secure venue, or they're moving off. And I think we're all kind of like. Let's just keep our head down while the headline news is so frothy. And, you know, that's the other thing the on-chain data tells us is even though we saw movement from one venue to cold storage or one venue to another, what you don't see is a massive sell-off. Like we can identify whether, you know, we could see my address and see that I've never sold since 2000, uh, since I bought it. Like you can see from, if you looked at my address, I've never done that but my address in my view is now in a more secure venue. So I'm still a participant and that's the beauty of these blockchains. Now, Tim, how are you finding this data set differing from what you had been providing to similar clients when you were using traditional uh, data? You worked at Thomson Reuters a number of years, you know, so how are you kind of, how has that knowledge helped you and how has it not been useful at all uh, from traditional finance now that you're in um, decentralized finance? In traditional finance, if you're running a publicly traded company, you're required to disclose things on a regular basis. There's a format, a form, a rhyme and a reason for how you disclose that. You want to participate in that capital market and you do that work. In crypto, we grew up a little bit different, right? We were going to be rebels. We were going to destroy that whole system we were going to be decentralized. And so, you know, the, the challenge for our regulators is there's no one at Bitcoin who's going to file anything. It's doing its thing. It's just running code. So, and ETH is doing the same thing. And you might say, well, Vitalik and his team are there, but they're not doing or claiming the things that I would claim at IBM or Microsoft. So we need to find a good middle ground on how we do that. We've talked about self-regulated organizations where we're, you know, working on stuff. Um, I think the market right now for institutions like us and others, we're all getting a bit of a wake up call. Like, okay, guys, like before we were all, you know, folks were out there searching for their unicorn valuation and all these other things and puffing their chests. And our clients, the regulated financial institutions are like, I got to go to Chainalysis for this, and I got to go to Fireblocks for this, and I got to go to Coinmetric for this. And you're making it really hard because the bank is regulated by this regulator. And in order for you to be a vendor, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Did you know that? And, um, uh, you know, so 
I think we're at a turning point. Now, Tim, how do you keep across the 12,000 plus coins and tokens that are out and trading at the moment? Do you have a cutoff somewhere and say, no, no more? We can't handle it. Yeah. So we're fortunate. So our friends at, you know, a coin market cap set out to cover everything in crypto for all the wild and wonderful that come into crypto. We set out to provide services to regulated financial institutions. And so that allows us to kind of start to think about how we cover assets and what we need to cover. So, you know, on the exchange side, <clears throat> many firms in the data space will tout 400 exchanges or 300 exchanges. We do 40-ish exchanges that cover spot and derivatives. And they're the exchanges that people would work with. We do the same thing on the asset class side of things. It's like, you know, and there's even some names in there that I, Martha's friend, something or other coin, I can't believe it's in there, but I'm like, I don't even know what it is. Realizing that the names of clients that we would have are not going to be interested in some of this stuff. They're already speculative enough just being in Bitcoin and ETH. And so we need to supply a robust but not exhaustive set of these assets. Yeah, I mean, in your um, webinar with Facts Set, when you announced that partnership, uh, I think you had mentioned that, you know, when you look at the exchanges, kind of the volume about 38% is Bitcoin and 19% Ethereum, and that gives you kind of 57% of the market. So, you know, if you've got those coins covered, you're not going to need the other um, 11,998. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank, thank gosh, because, you know, storage and data centers are expensive and we store all of that content. And so, you know, um, that's a lot of content to store if you're doing 12,000 exchanges and their full order books, every single trade, every single, that's a lot of data. Waves in the Finiverse, the podcast. Speaking to the people making waves in finance, fintech, crypto, Web3 and beyond. Now, Tim, you mentioned this is a, a time for building. Um, and of course, here at you know Waves in the Finiverse, we have a segment we called You Heard It Here First. Is there anything that you want to preview that we can look forward to coming from CoinMetrics? Or uh, what are some of the um, projects that are keeping you occupied at present? So where we're... We always thought it was going to be a thing, which is what does search look like in blockchain and how do you start looking for search? So we created uh, a product called Atlas, which is basically a block explorer, but it can do multiple blockchains at a time. So you put in an address and it can give you the um, history of the transactions within that address. Um, what we're seeing post FTX with large regulated institutions who are trying to say, hey, what if I could have banked FTX and they were legitimate? What disclosures would I have asked for from them? And the thinking from them and with us is, if I could have asked them to disclose the 10 largest wallets or the 10 largest addresses they had, then what would I watch for? And, and this tool set allows them to watch those addresses however frequently, in real time, block by block, to see what they're doing. And so we're having a lot of conversations, taking some tooling we created um, and KPMG uses it in their auto practice. But we think what it's starting to talk to is how do we distinguish counterparty risk in order to avoid this situation if we want to do business with a counterparty? And we can ask them for transparency on these things. 
If they choose not to disclose that, we can choose not to do business with them. So I'm really excited about um, people now wanting to ask for disclosures and then how you can monitor either the size of that address or the, you know, the buzzword in this space is proof of reserves. Like, do you really have enough to do what you say you're going to do? So we're using Atlas to work in there. And I think counterparty risk is a cool thing that we're working on with a lot of the big players. News from the Finiverse. Now, Tim, um, data is great uh, because it tells us what has happened, um, yet um, we're more interested in what is going to happen. Uh, So amongst the various data sets, uh, how do you and your customers use this to look forward? So... Large macro hedge funds that we engage with do their classic thing is pattern matching, looking at historical content, studying 100-day moving averages, creating channels, seeing when they break patterns and trying to apply technical analysis to forecast the future. Um, you know, we have some interesting metrics that look at um, realized value and um on-chain activity that start to sing, signal uh, an adoption pattern and a possible upward movement. Um, you know, again, we're not an asset manager, so this is an investment advice, but there's a number of things that people are looking for to find signal to forecast the future. Uh, you know, the the challenge with the asset class as an investable asset right now is there's so much alpha that exists just between exchange prices of Bitcoin across exchanges that the large hedge fund hasn't yet have to study the nuance of what's happening. So I think, you know, we've got a lot of maturity to go before what I call the fundamental data, the on-chain data becomes important to examining what's going on. Right. So with those differences in prices across the exchanges, there's still arbitrage opportunity to um, buy low, sell high and move it around. Definitely. And, you know, what I think gets people excited is we don't have T plus two, T plus any settlement like you're in, you're out, you're you know, you you've covered your arbitrage, you make a short hedge, you do the right thing. I think, you know, we're seeing some interesting thinking and patterns going on between stable coins, there a euro currency stable coin against a U.S. dollar, you know, a euro dollar versus a U.S. stable coin, and the fact that that can settle quickly, whereas the euro U.S. dollar FX pair is still taking you two days to settle. So meanwhile, you've got forty-eight hours of arbitrage or hedging opportunity before you settle the cash side of that trade. So you know, folks are getting really creative. Um, with what they're looking at and how they're thinking about trading the asset class. One of the challenges I found in communicating or speaking about this asset class is the, um, the population, the the general population view this as, you know, extremely volatile and um, uh, quirky. And I'm wondering what do the volume show you about, you know, the, the, the uptake and, are we, you know, is this truly winter based on the volumes uh, or are we seeing people getting back into the asset class? What are we seeing at the moment? So, you know, up until about two weeks ago, we had, you know, since FTX, we had low volatility sitting at 16,000, you know, kind of puttering along, doing stuff that was like, oh, great, we got the volatility out. That was a criticism of the asset class. 
And, you know, over the past couple of weeks, we've had a nice uptick. I think we're up 24% or something. I don't know exactly where we are right now, but, you know, we're at 23,710 as we're speaking from 16. So, you know, over the last three months, that's a 14% ret positive return over where we were three months ago. So now people are kind of like, oh, I got to, you know, am I, where am I? Like, what does the volume look like underneath that? And I think the volumes clearly haven't come back. You look at Coinbase's public disclosures on their activities in Q4 and other things from exchanges that disclose, you'll see like their trading revenues are not where they would have been when we were at 64,000 or somewhere else. So, you know, you're, you're seeing some nice movement without a lot of jerky volatility necessarily. Um, and so, you know, I would say we're still slightly sideways, you know, NASDAQ, I think said January was one of the biggest uptick months for NASDAQ. When you study NASDAQ, is that up actually on high volume? I don't think volumes are massive anywhere right now in the investment space. Um, the asset class, just like everything else, you know, my egg prices here in the US and everything else, how much I have to spend is dictated by the macro tailwinds and what's signaling. So, you know, people are cautious across the board everywhere, um, you know, and I think that just translates over into the investing side of crypto, you know, where I find solace is developer activity on building layer twos and dApps and working on DeFi. People are continuing to work and progress this technology. Yep, uh, build, build like a bear. Well, yeah, I was going to say, you know, wintertime, I somehow I send a slide up on the scale myself. And then in spring, getting ready for beach weather, I got to bring it back down. Um, I wanted to ask a question. We've seen waves of layoff in the tech industry, and yet we're hearing Web3 companies building like bears. If we're kind of speaking to uh, a tech worker who's recently kind of in between roles, what are the, where are the opportunities in Web3? And how are you going at finding and retaining talent? Um. <clears throat> So, you know, just to comment on any of the layoffs that are going on, we all got fat and happy during the previous free money regimes that we had. Valuations were high, hiring was easy. People um, were able to find good work. Um, you know, I think where I'm seeing pockets of hiring are definitely in areas of the crypto space. There are some crypto, you know, Coinbase has clearly signal layoffs, um, crypto.com, others have done that. Uh, you know, I think if for where we're looking at doing hiring, where I think others is again on the on-chain side, can you understand these new protocols? Can you translate layer twos and understand what they mean to translate data or interact with them? So I think if you're a tech worker in the space and you're looking at Web3, you probably want to look at the, we were discussing earlier, the horrible user experience you have with crypto. It's like that needs to be fixed to make it easier to bank the unbanked because we're kidding ourselves when we say that. Like this is not easy to work with. Like when we were talking about cold storage earlier, I took a whole Sunday morning and I've done this before to like, oh, you know, and you send a little snippet across to make sure you didn't screw it up and then you send more. And so I think building that user experience in the crypto category, whether you're doing at a large institution or you're thinking about a startup, I think that enablement is going to be really important to the next phase up. Fantastic. And Tim, what, um, as CEO, what keeps you up at night? Oh, last night, I think it was a chicken sandwich too late. Um, <laughs> <or bad. laughs> um, 
you know, I've always tried to enable innovation here and innovation comes with some costs on things. And, you know, I want to be able to get back to innovation. And I think what this is doing is thinking about how we do it smartly, efficiently, get everybody in line. But I, you know, I think innovation is going to get a little stymied by our um, fiscal conservatism across the world. Uh, so, you know, I'm hopeful that we get through this phase, we get to bring people back, engage, and really go at it hard for the future. Tracks in the Finiverse. Tim, we have a segment on uh, Waves in the Finiverse uh, where we ask people to think about the music that would power them uh, on their journeys. Uh, and that's tracks in the Finiverse. And if you go to Spotify, we actually have a playlist. Uh, we've had everything from Bach to Baby Shark. So, uh, Tim, we'd like your contribution to tracks in the Finiverse. Do you have music that would power your journey? Yes. Jimi Hendrix, All Along the Watchtower. Oh, man. Wow. Well, that is a phenomenal song. So I don't know if that's showing my age or whatever, but it's about the watchtower. It's about watching out what's going on and seeing the transparency in the ecosystem. There must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. This has been Waves in the Finiverse. Why not hit the subscribe or follow button? so you never miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. Thanks for listening.